When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on The Joseph Carlson Show, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Normally, what I do is I talk about my portfolio, the passive income account, the money that I'm investing, and the reasons that I'm buying specific companies. For instance, I've gone over extensively why I'm buying Microsoft or why I'm buying Apple or the reasons why I recently bought into Vici. Lots of different companies that I've been buying recently, and I explain my thesis. And that's typically what I like to do because I like to put my money where my mouth is. But I want to do something a little bit different. Rather than going over companies that I'm invested in and companies that I own, I want to talk about four companies that I am not making investments in and the reasons why. Now, before we jump into these companies and the reasons that I don't own them, I just want to give an important disclaimer. If you can't handle opposing opinions, and you can't handle someone talking negatively about a company that you own, or someone providing a bare thesis about a company that you own, just exit out now. This is not the video to be watching if you just want to feel good about every company you own, and all you're looking to get is more confirmation bias. I plan on being brutally honest and telling you the real reasons that I don't own these companies. So if that's something that's too difficult to handle, that's going to make your Friday bad, I don't want to make your Friday bet. Just exit out of the video right now. Now, with that said, let's go ahead and jump right in. I posted a couple days ago on my YouTube community page, what's the most undervalued stock? Leave your answers below. And people gave a lot of different answers. There were Chinese stocks like Alibaba. There was big tech stocks like Google. But one of the most popular answers and the most frequent answers was Intel. This is one that a lot of you are currently invested in. You're invested in Intel. Now, let's start off by looking at some of the fundamentals of Intel as a company. How is this company doing? I'll go ahead and use the stock search tool, Qualtrum Insights. This is available to all Patreon members. And just on a side note, I recently announced this tool just a couple days ago, and we literally had hundreds of new people join the Patreon to try it out, and an overwhelmingly positive response so far. So I appreciate all of you that are trying it out and giving it a chance. And if you haven't tried it out yet, I really think you're missing out. You can try it out with a free trial by joining the Patreon. But let's go ahead and jump into Intel here. The big story with this company is that it's undervalued. That's what everyone says is that Intel is a value play. You're buying deep value when you're buying Intel. Now let's go ahead and look at some of the fundamentals here. Market cap is $227 billion. The PE ratio is 12 and the price to sales is 2.9. The enterprise value to EBITDA is 6.67 and the price to book value is 2.6. So just on paper, looking at the market cap and the PE ratio, and the price to sales, this company does appear to be cheap. It does appear to be so. But when you add in other context and you add in what's going on with this company, I know I'm going to upset people when I say this, but I don't believe that Intel is as cheap as you think. I don't think this company is trading at some substantial discount and it's super cheap compared to other companies. Let's go ahead and look at some other relevant metrics here. First of all, the revenue growth of Intel is not impressive. This is not what I consider to be impressive revenue growth. It's unpredictable and it's barely growing. In fact, it's mostly flattish over the past five years. I guess it's growing slightly over time. In 2016, they were bringing in 16 billion. 
$15 billion in revenue per quarter, and now they're bringing in $19 billion and $19.4 billion. Like, that is a slight revenue increase over a long period of time. This is not a fast-growing company. In fact, Intel is struggling to grow their top-line revenue at all. And we even just recently had their quarterly report, and it was another disappointment. They beat their earnings per share growth, but they didn't grow their revenue. Their revenue was $18.1 billion against $18.24 billion expected. So they missed on revenue, and they grew their earnings per share. Now, this resulted in a 10% sell-off in one day on this stock. So it's down to under $50 a share. And over the past year, it's kind of been the same story for Intel investors. In fact, over the past five years, this stock really just has not done well. It's up 43%, not counting dividends, while the rest of the market is going up like crazy. Intel investors are continually buying this value company that seems to be a chronic underperformer. And if we look at the other fundamentals of this business, we get a better picture of why this company is not appreciating in stock price. We know that the revenue is flattish, and that's not a good thing. You want your companies to be growing top-line revenue. That is important. If they're not, other competitors are, and they're going to be stealing market share. We also have the EBITDA growth. This has been growing a little bit, but it's still not that impressive. It really hasn't improved too much over the past couple of years. Their free cash flow growth is pretty flat over the past couple of years, but it's stabilized. We can take a look at the net income here and the profitability. The company, again, is growing slightly here, but not enough to get excited about. We can also take a look at the debt. Intel is one of these really CapEx-heavy businesses. To grow this business, it requires a lot of capital, and that's not a positive for this company. That means out of their cash flow, they have to spend a lot of it to just grow this business at all. And you can see that reflected with the amount of debt that they hold. They hold anywhere from $25 billion to $40 billion of debt. Right now, they have $31 billion of debt. That is a lot of debt for this company. And if we compare that to the cash, you can see that they have $7 billion of cash. So they have three times the amount of debt that they do cash. That's not really a positive when you're looking at the risk factors for a company. Debt is a risk factor for any company. Simply put, the more indebted a company is, the more risky it is. Now we can look at the full dividend history here. This is a bright spot for Intel. They have a low payout ratio and they continually grow their dividend. So this company does have a very strong dividend history. And if we look at their earnings per share, they're also growing their earnings per share. And how are they growing their earnings per share? They're doing that in part by share buybacks. This chart starts with the y-axis at 4 billion, and then this graph goes to 4.7 billion. So you can see that since 2016, nearly five years ago, Intel has purchased back 700 million shares. That is an enormous amount of share buybacks. And this is where I have a real problem with Intel. This is where I don't really love this company. Now, most investors will look at this shares outstanding graph and see that Intel's doing share buybacks and they automatically assume that's a good thing. That's good. The company's doing share buybacks and that increases the earnings per share growth. I don't think so. I don't think that it's always good when companies do this form of financial engineering and they pour lots of their money into share buybacks. I think it's okay when growing companies do this, like Microsoft or Amazon or Apple. But Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple are flourishing. Those companies are growing their revenue like crazy. They're growing their market share. So they're not wasting money by putting it into share buybacks when they could be growing their business. But that's what Intel has done aggressively for the past five years. And I think it's a mistake. And I'm personally glad to see that the new CEO of Intel also agrees that this is a mistake. He says Intel will focus less on buying back company stock. I agree with him. 
Intel really has had no right to be doing these share buybacks over the past five years. It's been a mistake for the company, and I'm glad that this new CEO is changing gears. Their money should be directed into lowering their debt, reducing the risk for the shareholder, doing research and development, doing marketing, and furthering their CapEx expenditures to make it so they can grow again and they can compete with other companies. For the past few years, Intel has been left in the dust by their competitors. Apple, of course, left them to build their own chips, and they've been very successful in doing that. Here's a little clip from Marques on Apple's new M1 chip. So the M1 Pro chip has a 10-core CPU, 8 high performance with 2 high efficiency, and a 16-core GPU with up to 32 gigs of RAM, which doesn't sound like a lot, but keep in mind, this is just the first-tier Pro chip. Same shared memory architecture, still built on the 5 nanometer process, but it's basically, simply, a physically scaled-up M1 chip, as expected. And they're saying it will deliver 70% faster CPU performance and 100% faster GPU performance over the M1, the already really good M1, which was a head and shoulders over the Intel chips that came before it, which is pretty crazy. Marques notes that this chip in and of itself is already more advanced than what Intel's doing. But it doesn't stop there. They also brought out the Max chip. But then now there's also M1 Max, which again, scaled up even further, and it's mostly in the GPU department, so it's a bigger system on a chip. Look at the size of that chip. And this time it's the same 10-core CPU, but up to 32 cores of GPU, and up to 64 gigs of shared memory. So now you have four times the M1's graphic capability. The reported numbers are pretty crazy, and Apple's not the only one. We also have TSM and NVIDIA and AMD. We have lots of well-funded competitors all stealing Intel's lunch. So I'm not trying to be the bearer of bad news. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings if you're invested in Intel. I'm just telling the truth here. I don't like companies that are turnaround plays, companies that aren't headed in the right direction, and I'm going to wait around hoping that they can turn things around. Maybe the new CEO can. Maybe he has the special ingredient to be able to get this company going in the right direction, but I'm not going to join in that ride because I've done that before. I've invested in companies that are chronically undervalued. For example, I invested in AT&T. This is a company that on paper is undervalued. All the metrics show that it's undervalued. But what I missed with AT&T is it's not the most high quality business. It's not headed in the right direction. And investors anticipate the future. Unless the future looks extremely bright for a company, investors are not gonna price it at the deserved multiple that you might think. I see the same thing with Intel. The stock is going to struggle as long as the company's struggling. That's the simple truth. And I don't believe that Intel is quite as undervalued as people are making it out to be. For example, Morningstar says that Intel's trading at a 14% discount, which I don't think is great. That's not really appetizing. I'm not going to jump into Intel for a 14% discount. And maybe you think it's more discounted than that. But even then, I don't like the strategy of buying what I consider to be struggling companies for a discount. I much rather put my capital into what I consider to be extremely high quality companies like Costco or Apple or Microsoft at a perceived expensive price because I think over time, those will provide better gains. I really do. That's my thoughts on Intel. Let's go ahead and jump into Starbucks. Now, Starbucks is one of the most popular dividend growth investments. And I think for good reason, this company is very consistent. It has a good brand name and it continues to grow, even though it's already a very large company. It has a market cap of $134 billion. It trades at a PE ratio of 30 right now, which I think is okay. I think that's a decent PE ratio. I would put it just based on this around fair value. But if we look at some other metrics with this company, their revenue growth overall is growing. It took a hit during 2020. 
Obviously, with the shutdown in China and across the U.S., their business took an enormous hit. But it recovered very quickly, and now it's pulling in revenues at all-time highs. And you can see the trend over time. This company is pretty consistently, outside of COVID, it's pretty consistently growing its revenue. Now, we can see the 2020 COVID hit reflected in their other financials like their EBITDA, but that's recovering pretty rapidly as well. We can look at the free cash flow and see that that went negative during 2020, but now it's recovering. We can look at the net income. The same thing's reflected here. In 2020, it went into the negative, so the company was struggling, and then it quickly recovered. And this is all reflected in the stock price as well. If we look at the stock price of Starbucks, during 2020, it had a massive sell-off like the rest of the market. But I think even more so, it was down 35% and then it quickly recovered. Starbucks is 97% above where it was during the lows of 2020. Now they've grown their debt pretty substantially over the past couple of years. And that's not something that I love to see. When debt is inflated year after year, that concerns me as a shareholder. I don't like seeing my company grow its debt year after year unless there's very good reason, unless they're doing very accretive deals with that debt. But I hope that Starbucks is able to at least maintain their debt or start to minimize it. Now, the dividend history for Starbucks has been very consistent. The reason they had this drop in 2015 is simply because of a stock split. So their stock split in half and their dividend split in half per share. And I plan on labeling this on the graphs in the future. That's something that's going to be added. But you can see that the dividend has been growing every single year, even during the COVID pandemic. They continued to pay their dividend. They're very committed to it. Starbucks currently has $4.91 billion in cash. That's a decent amount of cash to have. Now, if we look at the earnings per share of Starbucks, it paints a story here. You notice right off the bat that they struggled during 2020. That is the first time in like 20 years that they had a negative EPS. They were really struggling. Starbucks is one of these companies that was really hit by having to close down all of their stores in China and across the U.S. But they did recover very quickly. The company's back on track. It seems stronger than ever. Now, the other point in time where I can see them struggling with their earnings per share is right in this area, right in 2008 during the financial crisis. Starbucks did struggle along with many other companies. So this is a company that overall is growing their earnings. They seem like they're back on track. Very few things affect the company. COVID was one big one. The recession was another. But outside of that, this company has done very well. And of course, we can look at the shares outstanding, which aside from the past couple of quarters, the shares outstanding have been going down. They've been aggressively doing share buybacks, which in my opinion, I think Starbucks has earned the right to do that. They should be doing share buybacks because their company's headed in the right direction, they're making lots of money, and they're competing really well with their competitors. Now, the real reason why I haven't invested in Starbucks is because I think I can simply find better value elsewhere. Let's compare Starbucks to Texas Roadhouse. Texas Roadhouse has a P.E. ratio of 21. Starbucks's was 30. So Texas Roadhouse on an earnings basis is much cheaper than Starbucks. But on top of that, Texas Roadhouse is actually growing faster than Starbucks. Not only is it at a cheaper price point, but it's growing its revenue much faster than Starbucks. But not only are they growing faster, but they have less debt. A lot less debt. They have $190 million of debt. That's it. $190 million. They have in cash right now, as of last quarter... $483 million. So Texas Roadhouse is at a much cheaper valuation on a price to earnings. They're growing their revenue faster. They have less debt, making them less risky, and they have more cash than they currently have debt. And then on top of that, they're growing their earnings per share at a very good pace. And like Starbucks, they recovered very quickly from the COVID effect. 
they're back on track now. So looking between the two, I like both companies a lot. But when I look at Texas Roadhouse, I just see that it's at a cheaper valuation, it carries less debt, it has more cash, they're growing their earnings per share just the same, and they have faster revenue growth. So all those things considered, I'm gonna lean towards this one. Now next up we have IBM, which is just a doozy. I apologize in advance if you're invested in IBM, this one's gonna be rough. I don't like this company at all from an investment perspective. If you're working at the company and you're an employee there, I think it might be a great job, but from an investment perspective, this is not a company that I think is a good investment, and I haven't thought it's a good investment for years now. I'm constantly asked about IBM because they pay a dividend and they grow their dividend over time, and it always seems like things are gonna turn around, but they continually, chronically disappoint investors, and I predict they'll do just the same in the future. For the past five years, this stock has been a disappointment, and there's reasons why. IBM trades at a 12 PE ratio. That seems cheap on paper. Right there, that looks good, but everything else with this company doesn't look so good. First of all, the revenue growth is flattish to declining. I think they had one quarter where they had positive revenue growth. That's good. I guess they're growing slightly, but this company has really struggled with their top line growth. Their amount of free cash flow is very inconsistent and it's overall at least flattish, maybe in decline. They're not growing their net income. This company's not growing their profits in any meaningful way. What they do seem to be growing though over the past five years is their debt. So you're carrying on more debt when you own this company. Their dividend is the thing that in my opinion, suckers a lot of dividend investors into buying this company. I think this company is one of the dividend traps. People look at this nice dividend history and they think that this company's on the right track. But you can see that the dividend growth in and of itself is starting to level off. They can't continue to increase their dividend. They can't afford to do it, otherwise they would. But you can see that it's basically flat over the past three years. The only reason that they're increasing the dividend at all, that one penny increase, is symbolic reasons. They want people to invest in them because they have the dividend growth. They want to stay on all those ETFs. They want to stay on those charts of companies that have grown their dividend for XYZ reasons. And it's not a good reason. And we can look at their earnings per share. Despite IBM's best effort of financial engineering to do as many share buybacks as possible and artificially increase their earnings per share, they still haven't been successful. It's still on a steady decline as their business is being taken over by newer, nimbler, and better competitors. And you can see this reflected in their shares outstanding. Look at how many share buybacks they've done over the past couple of years trying to prop up the earnings per share. But this is financial engineering. This is a company that's not growing and a company that's struggling amidst many competitors trying to pour money into buying their own stock. That's not what you want your money going to. You don't want them buying more stock. You want them investing in their business to grow it. So IBM is a company that's relied heavily on its legacy business of on-premise client-side software. That's how they've worked. And they do a lot of consulting work and their clients are really locked into that on-premise business model. As they transition those same clients to the cloud, they now have eroded their own moat. They made it easier for their own customers to switch to competitors like AWS or Microsoft. So IBM has a very difficult path to navigate. They have a very difficult challenge to grow their business in any meaningful way. If you want an example of companies that have transitioned from on-premise to cloud in very intelligent ways, and they navigated these waters in very good ways, we can look at a couple of them. Adobe has. This is a company that was all on-premise, one-time sales, and they changed their business to cloud. 
and they did it in a really good way. Look at their revenue growth. Quarter over quarter, it's extremely consistent. Adobe's a company that I think is a great investment. Microsoft is another company that moved from the legacy business of client-side architecture to cloud. And they did it in a very smart way. Sasha Nadella did this in a great way. And you can see the growth of this company is also incredibly consistent. While Adobe and Microsoft made this transition to the cloud look easy, other companies like IBM and Oracle have not. They've really struggled with this transition. And then there's the companies that are born in the cloud, like Salesforce or Workday. These companies have the advantage of having no conflict of interest. Workday can grow its revenue and grow its cloud-facing product without cannibalizing its current customers. So they have a massive advantage over IBM. And IBM is always going to be at a disadvantage to Salesforce or Workday or Microsoft. They're simply at a substantial disadvantage. So in my opinion, unless you know something that I don't about this company, unless you think the future is truly bright and they're going to be able to change their business model enough to really create shareholder value, I wouldn't be sucked into this company. I don't plan on buying a single share of it. I think that there's much better tech companies to buy. And in the long run, even though companies like Microsoft or Workday or Salesforce or Adobe look more expensive on paper, in the long run, I think IBM will cost you a lot more. Now, after IBM, we have Cinemark, the movie theater. This is a company that I really like. I like Cinemark theaters. I have them all around me. I really don't have a lot of AMC theaters or other types around me, but I really enjoy Cinemark. Their theaters are high quality. They upgraded all the chairs so they recline and they're huge chairs. It's a really enjoyable theater to go to. This is something that I enjoy doing. It's a company that I enjoy their product, but Cinemark, like every movie theater, has gone through a really rough go in 2020. They've really struggled and that's reflected in their finances. The company's market cap is 2.37 billion. So this is a pretty small company. The PE ratio right now is 84, which is kind of high, an 84 PE ratio for a movie theater. But given the circumstances, it makes sense. The revenue literally almost dropped to zero during certain parts of 2020. $8.97 million in revenue compared to the $788 million they were getting. Think about that for a minute. Their revenue went from $788 million in one quarter to $8.9 million. That's almost nothing. And even in their last quarter, the revenue is going up like crazy. It went up like five times, but their revenue is still only at $256 million which is around one-fourth of where they used to be. So we can look at the price chart and see this illustrated. Cinemark is still down to this day around 45% from where they were just a couple years ago. Because the company hasn't fully recovered, neither has the stock price. So Cinemark right now is really struggling as a business. They still have not anywhere close to recovered, and their revenue is nowhere close to where it used to be. And there's some people predicting that it is doom and gloom for movie theaters, that they will never have their revenue returned to where it was because of all the streaming services. I don't really believe that. I think that eventually the revenue will get back up to where it used to be. I think it will just take a while. Now, we also have the EBITDA here. It doesn't look pretty. Since 2020, it's gone down dramatically. They're still losing money. You can see that in the free cash flow. Last quarter, they had $87 million of free cash flow. The net income doesn't look pretty as well. It's still heavily in the red. Now, of course, with their company essentially being shut down for a year, they had to take on debt every quarter to fund their operations. But you can see that this has largely stopped. Over the past three quarters, they've taken on very minimal amounts of debt, and they have a sizable cash balance of $600 million. So right now, I don't expect them to continue adding on more debt to this company. I think that they're going to stay flat and wait for the business to recover before paying it down. Their dividend payments used to be pretty consistent, 
This used to be a dividend paying company, but you can see that it stopped right at 2020. The first quarter of 2020 was the last dividend payment, and they have a long ways to go, years to go before bringing this back. We can also see the effects of the pandemic on their EPS. It took a huge dive and it's recovered a little bit, but it hasn't recovered like Starbucks or Texas Roadhouse. Theaters still continue to struggle, and that's the problem. Investors remain with a very negative outlook on the future of the company, again with many of them predicting that it will never have the same earnings that they used to. Now outside of debt, they also helped fund the business during 2020 by diluting shareholders slightly. They went from 117 million shares to 119 million, so they increased their share count by maybe 1-2%. to This isn't a huge deal in my opinion, and it looks like they've already slowed down with the dilution. So in my opinion, looking at all the fundamentals, I think that Cinemark does have upside. I think it could recover past what investors are expecting and the price could move upwards. But I'm not going to be buying into this company because it doesn't fit with my whole investment thesis. I focus on very high quality companies that have decades of runway, decades of growth ahead of them, and they have very strong fundamental characteristics that fight off competitors, that make it so that they're running in their own lane. And Cinemark has very few of these qualities. I think that it has limited upside, it's a struggling company, it doesn't offer really any unique product, and it's something that's been around for a very long time. So although it may be a good recovery play, and you may be able to squeeze some gains out of it, it's not one that I plan on jumping into. So that's my thoughts on four companies that I do not currently own and the reasons that I don't own them. And keep in mind, I could be wrong. If you're bullish on one of these companies, maybe I'm wrong and the company will do fantastic and I hope that it does. But that's my real honest thoughts on it. I hope you enjoyed this video. Let me know what you think in the comments below and I'll see you in the next episode.